In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. I had a dream in which I dreamed who became the President of the United States at the next election. I did. So I know who's going to win that race. Until I tell you what, it's very surprising. You'd be absolutely shocked at who's going to win this election. Well, the dream did not have a lot of detail. All it showed me, all I saw was who it was. You know, I had no idea how they got there. It didn't, you know, and I, and I had questions. Well, a little bit later in the dream, there was kind of a backflash. You know how a movie does sometimes? It backflashes and fills some information that you didn't know before. Well, my dream did that, and I saw the campaign that this person ran, and I got an idea of who voted for them. And, and, and then again, another switch, another scene change, and I saw the opposition's campaign and where they had messed up, you know, and it just went on and on like this. And, and as I got more information, while my dream skipped around, I was able to put more and more information together. It was not in chronological or sequential order, this dream, but by the time I gathered everything together, I had a pretty accurate big picture of not only who was going to be president, but how they got there and all the background information. So now if I'm really interested in figuring out the whole big picture, I've got to spend some time looking at my dream, trying to remember it, and, and gathering all the clues and the details from the different places so I can build this big picture. See where, I, see where I'm at with that now? Okay, now I will confess that I never had such a dream. And I don't know who's going to be elected at the next um, election process. But I, I made up the story in order to illustrate something. There are a lot of people extremely frustrated with the book of Revelation. Right? The Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was an old man. And he had been under the thumb of, of the Emperor Diocletian. It was, it was kind of a fairy tale story, you know, where Diocletian tried to kill the Apostle John and he miserably failed. It, it, it really, it sounds like something out of the storybooks where he threw him into a pot of boiling oil and he wouldn't die. So finally, out of frustration, not able to kill him, Diocletian exiled John to the this desolate island out in the Mediterranean called Patmos. And while there, John did actually receive a vision. A long and confusing, at least for me, vision. Because his vision did just what I had described. You know, it gave him all sorts of different points of view and, and skipped here and there and back and forth. It, some parts of it would would uh, focus on what happened to Satan. And other parts would focus on the New Jerusalem. And other parts would focus on the redeemed. And it spanned lots of different times and periods. One scene of his vision might encompass broad general strokes all the way from the creation of the world to the end of time. While another scene might focus on just a little piece right in the middle of it. 
And so people that read, try to read through the book of Revelation like it's a sequential chronological book understandably get frustrated. And it's very common to hear, why even study that? Nobody can understand it. That's true. Nobody would understand the dream that I supposedly had either if they were to look at it exactly in order because it would just be making a, you know, especially if I, there was a twist to it and they were characters that were named different than what they actually were and many of the characters had three or four different names for the same character. This is what we're dealing with in Revelation. So if you attempt to read Revelation that way, you're very likely going to end up confused. But we have to remember that Revelation is not John's artwork. God presented this vision to John the way that he did on purpose. John just wrote it down, what he saw. So God designed Revelation that way, on purpose. That's why we have to skip around so much in the book to be able to build even a somewhat of an accurate big picture. One vision gives hints and details that are going to clarify another part of the vision. And that part of the vision gives hints and details that clarify another part entirely. It's a gigantic jigsaw puzzle is what it is when you have to put it all together that way. Well, last time, for those of you that were here, you remember that I simply recited the last two and a half chapters of the book of Revelation just to kind of give us an overview of the last, the last part of the vision. Well, today what I want us to do is I want us to go back and dissect it a little bit. I want to go through it again and take out some, some points and talk about them a little bit in greater detail so that we can discover some of the things that are below the surface and maybe put together a bigger picture, a more accurate big picture of the plot of Revelation. So let's just start where I did last time in Revelation 19 verse 11. And I had uh, Daryl read a few earlier verses because they're going to be important for, for later. But we're going to start in verse 11, and I'll draw our attention to some specifics as we go through. So John's vision is continuing. It's actually nearing the end in verse 19. I saw heaven standing open, and before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Go ahead and build this, this picture in your mind. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Okay, there is a rider on a horse. Who do you think the rider is? Jesus. You say that very confidently. Is that a guess? No. The great thing about Revelation is that all of the apparent mysteries that are locked into the book are also unlocked by the book. And not only just the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible. John used that as his background. Everything that you don't understand in Revelation is understandable by understanding the rest of Revelation, the other parts of the vision. So, what is just one key that would unlock who the rider of the horse is? Who can, where can you think of in, in, in the Bible that might tell us 
something about the rider on this horse. Well, one of those would be another book that John wrote called the Gospel of John. You remember John chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning. Describing Jesus, John says, remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The rider on the horse, his name is the Word of God. Okay? That's just one of many clues, of course, that, that will continue to, to confirm that. But the rider on the horse, whose name is the Word of God, is Jesus, the leader of the angelic armies. The armies, verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Small details in prophecy are very important. There are no details that I'm aware of in prophecy that don't have a reason for being there. Why would John point out a detail like what they're wearing? Any idea? Yeah, well, yeah, but why would he point that? Yes, because there is some symbolism there. What did we just read in the, in the scripture reading? In verse 8, what fine linen stands for. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So all of a sudden we have a little bit bitter picture. These are the people that are following the rider on the horse are the forces of righteousness. That becomes pretty clear, right? The redeemed of the world, or not the redeemed, but the, um, the, right, the forces of good. And then verse 15, going on to describe the rider on the horse. Out, this is a weird picture. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Obviously, that's symbolic, right? There's got to be some meaning behind that because it's a very strange picture. But as always, the Bible explains it. The Bible explains it. Can you think of another place in the Bible where, where a sword is used metaphorically? Hebrews? Or maybe you're thinking, it could be in Hebrews as well, but I was thinking of Ephesians. Ephesians 6.17. Remember that verse? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's the name of the rider on the horse? The Word of God. That would fit pretty well, right? Out of the mouth of the rider comes a sharp sword. The Word of God. There is great power in the Word of God. We were downstairs with the kids today. We were talking about creation. With a word, God brought this world into existence. Is that powerful? With a word, he brought this word, world into existence. And here we see now that he is preparing with the word to take it back out of existence. With his word. To strike down the nations, it said. And the nations here are referring to the peoples of the earth. And, and specifically those who are in rebellion against him. And we'll see that part in a minute. Verse 15. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Strength there. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords? 
Jesus is. Again, we confirm who the rider on the horse is. Verse 17, I saw an angel. Okay, we have a, we're seeing a change here, right? I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now, a lot of commentators have speculated that this imagery of the sun is actually the brilliance of God. And that would make sense um, with, in the context. That's just how John describes him in chapter 1, the brilliance of the sun. And the angel is standing beside him, maybe kind of like an armor bearer used to stand beside an officer in ancient times. So we have this picture of this angel standing beside Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, to all of the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you can eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Now this gruesome picture is not Hollywood-style gratuitous violence. There is a reason for it there. Now most of us have heard about this great supper of God, but in another context. And in fact, we just read it in verse 9 in our scripture reading. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who, invite, or who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It seems that everyone in the world has been called, has been invited to a great supper of God. One group has been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb to eat. And we see that described as a long table in heaven, a banquet table. We even sing the song, He brought me to his banqueting table. But the other group is called to a great supper of God, not to eat, but to be eaten. Those are the wicked. Now, this isn't necessarily a literal threat. I mean, it's possible that the birds may eat, but it's not necessarily a literal threat of being eaten by birds. It's more of a dramatic phrase. You know, when, a, when one teenager says to another teenager that he's going to beat him up, he probably doesn't say, okay, now I'm going to beat you up. Are you ready? You know, he doesn't say it like that. He uses more dramatic phrases, right? I'm going to kick you into next Tuesday or something like that, right? He uses more, more colorful language than that. He's using the drama of the situation. Well, this is kind of doing the same thing, I think. In Bible times, it seemed to be a common threat for one person or one army to threaten the other one to feed them to the birds. You remember the story of David and Goliath, right? That's the very threat that they tossed back and forth before their fight. I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air. I make this point for a reason. God always speaks to his people using their own context, using vision, or, uh, symbols and, and words and, and scenes that they are going to understand. How often have you heard somebody say, well, the locust in Revelation are actually helicopters and tanks and things like that? Would John know what those things were? No. God intended John to understand the book of Revelation. He intended everybody to understand it. He says so right in the very beginning. Blessed are those who read and keep the words of this book. How do you keep something you don't understand? Right? It was intended for all people of all time to understand the book of Revelation. And God 
uses images and, and, and words that John could understand in his context. If God were giving you or I the vision, he would use different words and different vi- symbols that we would understand. We saw that in the book of uh, Ezekiel last year when we, when we studied that. Do you remember Ezekiel saw some really strange creatures? They had four faces, four wings, hooves like cattle. And they were holding up the sky. Now to us, that sounds very, very strange. But let me just think here. If somebody were to give you a vision of a little short man with a long beard that lives in a garden, wears a little hat, and think, you know what? People are going to recognize that in our culture, right? As a little tiny troll. Anybody that has, has heard any of the fables for, for kids know some of these visions. Well, a thousand years from now, somebody sees that written down, and oh, what a strange thing. Ezekiel knew what those creatures were from his own mythology. He was familiar with these symbols. If we do not understand the context as best we can of when God gave this revelation, we're not going to have as deep of understanding of what we, as we could. So we must be familiar as much as we can with what John understood at the time, and then we will have a greater understanding. Now, John's vision cuts to a new scene, like a movie does for us. And he jumps from seeing the armies of heaven to seeing the armies of evil. All right? Verse 19, in chapter 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. It looks like there's going to be a battle, right? Armageddon, anyone? Now, you know, we're, not, we're not going to get into that right now, but that, I'll just give you a clue that that's what it is, and we can gather those, that information from other places. And, because I don't want us to get into actual interpretation today. We're not going to look at who the beast is today, because the fact is, is we often jump so quickly from the Bible to history to try and identify these characters that we totally miss the basic overall story of Revelation. We miss the plot line of what's happening. So we may have satisfied ourselves that we know who this creature is, but we really don't have a grasp on what he does or why he does it or who's associated with him. Sometimes I think it would be better if we would just forget who, what is what and just use the characters there and understand the plot of the story. That's what I want us to do today. No matter who the beast is, one thing is obvious from just this one verse, right? The beast and his cohorts are enemies of the rider on the horse. That much is clear, isn't it? Okay, so we're getting plot line here. Verse 20. The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. Okay, we got several new clues here, new information that we didn't have before. The false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. Now again, we're not going to look at who the beast and the false prophet are. But something else becomes clear in this verse. The beast power has another power called the false prophet working for him. We see that, right? He performs miracles on his behalf. All right? Again, well, okay, why do you think that he performed these miracles? Let's read on. 
With these signs, he, the false prophet, had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. He had done what? He deluded. He lied to them. He sucked them into a deception. All right? This power works as a front man to the beast. You understanding this? The beast is not the one in the spotlight. The one that is in the news on CNN or whatever is the false prophet. Important detail. The beast is behind the scenes. Now, there is something else, and I'm going to pull in some information from other visions that we haven't seen yet, or we won't see soon. This is other parts of Revelation. But there is another backstage as well. There is a backstage to the false prophet where the beast is. There is a backstage to the beast where another entity is. And that is the dragon. The false prophet serves as a smokescreen for the beast. The beast serves as a smokescreen to the dragon. How many characters? Three. A false counterfeit trinity. And this is, this is a deep subject. We're not going to get into this today. But the fact is, if you study all of this through, we will find out that at the end of time, there is going to be a massive deception in which the counterfeit trinity claims to be the true trinity. And you'll be shocked at how the characteristics line up of how the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, Jesus points to the Father. It all works out in the counterfeit trinity. It's amazing stuff. But we'll have to get into that another time. But what I want us to note today is that there will clearly be a great deception in the end. He deludes the people into following and worshiping the wrong God. Final great deception. And how many people are deluded, we'll see in a minute. It's a lot. But back to the story. The beast and the false prophet were captured by the heavenly army, and the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the first of two lakes of fire, by the way. A lot of people miss this. At Jesus' second coming, there is a lake of fire in which the beast and the false prophet are thrown into. And then another will come after the thousand years, which we'll see that later. Now, note the next verse, because it comes, becomes important later. Verse 21. The rest of them, this is the kings and the armies, were killed by the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. There were only two killed in the lake of fire here, the beast and the false prophet. The rest of them were killed by the sword that comes out. What is the sword that comes out of the rider's mouth? The word of God. The rest of them are killed by the word of God. All right, and the, and the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. Okay, now we have a new scene with a new set of clues. See how we're putting these clues together to build a bigger picture? A new set of clues for building this picture. All right, chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. New information here. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. All right? What is the abyss? Is it some deep cavern in the earth where fire is burning continually and there are people screaming in agony? Is that the abyss? If it is, please show that to me in the Bible. I would like to see it. From all I can see in the Bible, 
The abyss is explained, and it doesn't look like that. Anybody have any idea where the abyss might be explained? For one place? Where, though, I'm asking. Where do we see that? Travel all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. The second verse in the entire Bible has the word abyss. Remember? And the earth was without form, not the earth, the abyss was without form and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. You're right. From everything that we can see in the Bible, and there are some other clues, the abyss is the earth with nothing in it. That's it. The earth with nothing in it. Verse 2. This angel, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, so we don't have to guess who the dragon is, right? Tells us right there. And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And then it gives us a quick preview of something that's going to come later. At the end of the thousand years, he's going to be released for a short time. That's just a, a clue that we have to stick behind our ear for later. And again, I'm not going to get into details of interpretation because I want us to get a grasp on the plot. But the picture that we see here is after the great deception, right? Satan is going to be stopped for a thousand years. Okay? After the great deception, Satan is going to be stopped for a thousand years. He will be confined to a decimated planet. That's what it appears to be where he has no access to anyone. Then after a thousand years, he will be freed to do some more deceiving, to, receive his, to resume his work. End of another section. Okay? Goes on to another scene. Now that Satan has been stopped for a thousand years, John gets a glimpse of what happens meanwhile, during this thousand years, while Satan is moping around, thinking about everything that he has done for the past who knows how many thousands of years. Verse 4. New scene. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the, this is who's sitting on the thrones, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and the word of God. Who are those that had been given the authority to judge? Those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, right? Who is that? The redeemed. The redeemed of the earth. So, what we have here is what is happening during the final thousand years. The final thousand years, the redeemed are busy doing what? Judging. Who are they judging? What just happened to the beast, the false prophet, and everyone else? They were killed by the word of God. Who are they judging? The dead? The saints. The saints are the ones doing the judging. Who are they judging? The dead. They're judging the dead. We'll see that here in a minute. Okay. And they had these, these ones that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Now, the way that I understand the mark on the forehead and on the hands is a, is a, a question of loyalty. It's symbolic for loyalty. There, in this great deception, there is going to be those that actually believe the lie. They have a mark on their forehead. This symbolizes what they actually believe. There is another group who does not have a symbol on their forehead, but they have it on their hand. 
Those are the people who are not deceived by the lie, but they go along anyway to go along. That's exactly right. They go along to save themselves. Two groups. This group here, they did not receive the mark of the beast in their forehead or in their hand. They refused to go along even though it cost them greatly. What happened to them? We just read it, right? They were beheaded. They suffered for the testimony of Jesus. But what happened to them? They were raised to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Friends, if you are called on to suffer for Jesus, which at some point we all ought to be, you will not fail to lose your reward. They were raised to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That's a, that's a key thing that we're going to need for later, so keep that tucked in behind your ear. This is the first resurrection. So right away we have a hint that there's going to be a second resurrection, right? This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God, Christ, and of God, and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, now John gets a fast forward. This is, he was just given a glimpse here, but he gets a fast forward to the end of the thousand years. It's like God is giving a, an executive summary of all of the detail, or of all, the whole big picture, and then he's coming back to fill in details later. All right? When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. Now, all of a sudden, we have a problem here. Where are the nations? They're dead. But we did get a clue of something a minute ago, right? There's going to be a second resurrection. Different parts of the vision. We've got to pull those things together and put them in. So the vision is assuming something here that we've probably already gained or will gain later. He goes out to deceive the nations. At the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, images from the book of Ezekiel, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. How many were deceived? An awful lot of people. It's a sad thing. But a lot were deceived. But, okay, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. The city he loves. Uh-oh. We just got some more information that we don't know anything about. What is the camp of God? What is the city? Now, from our, from our past experience, you may be able to answer the question, but... But we do get some information on that, and we're going to have to look at that more next time on, on that, because it's in the later part of the vision. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Number two. The second lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And we're running out of time. And that's where I'd end it anyway. But let me just give you then a quick overview of the picture that we have so far. Okay? We started out. We see that there's going to be a great battle. The armies of the beast and the armies of the rider on the horse are going to fight. All right? Then we have a 
a glimpse of what happens where the beast and the false prophet and all those are killed by the word of God and the, and the first lake of fire. And what happens to Satan during a thousand years. Okay, that's what we've got. He is locked up here for a thousand years while the righteous judge the dead. And there's a lot more detail we could go into all of these, but we, we have to keep it here. Um, so we saw the, the judging that's going on, and then we see... Now, we don't have all of this information yet, but apparently the holy city and the redeemed come back to earth, which we'll look at more of that next time. The devil is released. He goes out and deceives all the nations of those who had been resurrected once again, and they march across the earth, a decimated planet as it is, and they surround the city of God's people. Again, we'll look at that more next time. And then Satan, then fire comes down and destroys them. Now, I'll start there next time. I'll pick up from that spot, and we'll go on through the rest of that picture. And, and the truth is, is we can gather details and continue to expand and expand and expand more and more of this. And it's a pretty incredible picture that you come up with in the end. Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.